0: Let's pray together. Our Father, to you we come in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, because you have commanded us to boldly come to the throne of grace, our Father, that we might receive help in our time of need. And it seems every day, every hour is our time of need. Father, we know that we are dependent upon you for every blessing and even for life itself. This seems quite clear as we study even these first chapters in the book of Genesis. We know, Father, that it is the desire to be totally independent from all outside influences that has led to so many shipwrecked lives. Lord, I pray that we will recognize our total dependence upon you for life and health and strength and wisdom and for all that makes up this life. We ask you to be with us now in these moments to guide us in our study of the word of God. And Father, we pray your special blessing on the service that is going on at this hour also, and that you'll be very present with us all. In Christ's name, amen. Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. We began to look at this passage last week, and we'll continue on with it this morning. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 uh, outlines back there you'll need. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. At the end of class last week, I made the point that obviously the serpent was not a normal animal in this particular story. He was a normal animal that becomes involved in the story in a supernatural way. There is no animal and there was no animal, capable of tempting Adam and Eve in the spiritual realm, in that no animal possesses a spirit. There were certain fleshly parts or appetites involved, and we know that quite well. But the primary battle in this whole thing was spiritual. So obviously, the serpent was possessed of some spiritual being, and it noted the fact that it doesn't The being is not named, other than simply the term serpent being used here. So we turned to Revelation, and we won't turn to it again this morning, and we looked in Revelation 12 and in Revelation 20, and we noted that the scripture there talks about the serpent of old. It goes on to refer to him as the dragon, as the devil, and as Satan. Now the term serpent of old is certainly a reference back to this passage in Genesis. And so the other terms being synonyms used in this particular passage or those passages in Revelation uh, help us to understand who the spiritual being was, Satan, the adversary. Now, exactly who is this person or this being and where does he come from? Well, there are two passages often referred to Let's turn to the first one in Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, beginning at verse 12. Isaiah 14, 12. Turning to Isaiah 14, 12, we read this. How have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, O son of the dawn? You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. Now the context of this passage is a prophecy against the king of Babylon. But in this prophecy, God is giving to Isaiah vision behind what was the driving force in ancient babylon the new testament tells us that we wrestle not with flesh and blood but with principalities and powers and so forth so that the great titanic struggles that go on today are, are driven by spiritual forces and so as we look at this particular passage in isaiah it seems probable that the great display of God's power and his glory in creating the heavens and the earth created in Satan this this glorious being, a jealousy, and a desire to actually be like the most high, to in effect join the Trinity, if you will. Somehow pride entered his heart and and he began to seek co-equality with his creator, obviously losing vision of the fact that he was a creature. Now, he's called, in this passage, star of the morning, literally shining one. Now, the Latin term Lucifer, which means light bearer, was used in the King James Version to translate the Hebrew word hellel here. Now, Lucifer was the Latin poetic name for the planet Venus which is commonly known as the morning star, and, and many, many people even today refer to Venus as the morning star. It's not a star, as you well know, it's a planet. But to the ancients, they had a hard time distinguishing stars and planets other than the movement of the planets. That's why they call them planetas, wanderers. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, the usage there may underscore the fact that Satan was really attempting to supplant Christ. Because later, at the end of Scripture in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, we're told that Jesus Christ is the bright morning star. Let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 11. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the burl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald. And the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you." Now again, this is a prophecy against, basically, against an earthly king and kingdom. The prophecy is against the king of Tyre. And Tyre, in many ways, like ancient Babylon, is sort of symbolic of of evil and the things of the world. I'm not saying that Tyre wasn't a literal place and Babylon wasn't a literal place, but often they're used in scriptures as symbols also of evil and violence and worldliness. And so we have here, I believe, a behind the scenes vision again, as was in the case of Isaiah. Here we have the description of what appears to be the greatest of all the angelic beings he's called the anointed cherub who covers we're told in his passage he was created blameless now it's quite obvious this cannot this passage cannot be referring to the king of tyre as an in, as a human being an individual because he wasn't in eden he was no anointed cherub he he didn't appear in all these beautiful colors although he may have possessed all these gems in his great treasury there there's a a look behind the power behind the king of Tyre, a look to see what is behind the power of the king of Tyre. And we're told that this created being was blameless originally, but somehow unrighteousness crept in to him. Now, where did this unrighteousness come from? And of course, one of the big questions that theologians have kicked around is uh, how did sin begin in the first place if if the universe and everything was created perfectly by a perfect God. And nobody, of course, has arrived at the ultimate answer. But this passage tells us that he was made proud by his beauty and corrupted by his splendor. And I I think the terms used here, pearl and onyx and jasper and lapis lazuli, are, are, are simply the best we can do with human terms to describe the splendor of this anointed cherub who covers. He must have been beautiful beyond really human description, and and any physical uh, gems or minerals and so forth could could only faintly represent the beauty of this one in his splendor. As a result, as Isaiah had already informed us in the passage that we read, he sought to make himself like the Most High. Pride entered his heart. Somehow he became focused inwardly. He began to see himself as beautiful and therefore self-worthy. He then somehow convinced a third, at least that seems to be the implication in various passages of Scripture, a third of the angelic beings to give their allegiance to him. And it seems that he attempted to, by force, acquire power in heaven. Through the agency of the archangel Michael and the rest of the angels, God threw Lucifer out of heaven. God didn't need the angels to do that. God is all-powerful, all-sovereign. God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. He just chooses to use agencies, like he chooses to use you and me to carry the gospel. He doesn't have to do it that way. But he gives us opportunity to be a part of his plan and his program, and I think that same is true for angels. And so God used Michael and the other angels to cast Lucifer out of heaven. And I believe, at least, that the passage in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, is the description of this war being terminated with Lucifer being thrown out of heaven, where Jesus Christ, as he is talking to the seventy who have returned, and they were talking about demons being cast out and everything, and he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Seems like that at least has as its basis the original war and and casting of Lucifer out of heaven, whatever uh, specific meaning he might have had in the context of the 70. Now, we won't turn to it, but there's a verse in Jude that you probably are aware of, We're we're told that Michael the archangel himself dared not stand toe-to-toe with Lucifer and, and, and deal with him. He called upon God to deal with Lucifer, which seems to indicate that Satan's residual power, I don't know to what extent his power has even been diminished, but his power is still greater than that of the archangel Michael. Because Lucifer was the greatest of all the angelic beings, at least it seems to imply that, in these uh, Old Testament prophetic passages. But he never should be viewed, of course, as co-equal with God in any way, shape, or form. Uh, many dualistic philosophies or religions put God, the force of good, and the force of evil as more or less co-equal. And of course, many of the philosophies or religions like to believe that ultimately good will win in the end, but it's sort of like two titanic forces of, of near equal strength. But that, of course, is not, tr- not true at all. Uh, Satan is allowed to do what he does simply because God has chosen to allow that. Satan could be snuffed out momentarily by the power of God. God is not limited by Satan's power in any way except by his own choice. Now, when he came to earth, Satan became, as we're told in Ephesians 2, prince of the power of the air. And his angelic cohorts became the demons, or as we're told in Ephesians 6, the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Now, if you've read the Paretti books, obviously he is using uh, literary license to, to build uh, his own vision of what's going on in the uh, spiritual realm behind the scenes. And whether uh, the demons could actually be portrayed as, you know, breathing sulfur and black and hulking and, and whether there's big ones and little ones and all this or not, certainly it would seem logical that from that one-third of the angels which were cast out of heaven, there was a hierarchy, some that were more powerful than others, and uh, thus they have retained that hierarchy in their fallen state. Now, the fact that Satan or his demons had the power to Enter into an animal, and even we're willing to enter into an animal, seems to be illustrated by the passage I have there in Luke eight thirty three, where you remember Jesus came to the other side of the lake of Galilee, and there was the wild man who uh, was demon possessed, and he talked with him, and the man, the demons spoke back and said, "We are many, we are legion," and uh, Jesus threw them out, but they wanted to go into Something else and it says in verse 33 and the demons came out of the man and entered the swine and The herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned Seems foolish, but nevertheless you don't usually credit uh, demons with a lot of uh, you know intelligence yes, but uh, wisdom no They went into the herd of swine They, they entered the bodies of those animals And so it's very logical for us to to think of satan entering into the body of this animal called the serpent nachash in hebrew and to pervert the god-given prudence we last week we talked about the the hebrew word here for the serpent it well let me go back to genesis here chapter 3 verse 1 says the serpent was made more crafty and the word translated crafty, is also translated prudent in passages such as we read in Proverbs. And so this, this good characteristic is now being perverted by Satan. And of course, you and I can think of many attributes and characteristics which are possessed by us as human beings which Satan perverts or which we allow to be perverted, which the fallen nature of human race has produced in a perverted way. I mean all we have to do is is think about one of the most powerful driving forces we have and that's the sexual drive and To know that it's been vastly perverted from what God originally intended it to be to what it is today A source of so much violence and death and destruction and and horror So satan entered the body of this this serpent whatever it was like at those at that particular time and people have tried to Portray it in different ways, you know a coiled snake around a tree a giant lizard Whatever, whatever it was, it was beautiful, it was not threatening, it, it, it was uh, you know, something that virtually everybody would have looked upon and admired. Now there's no record in the passage that, that Eve showed surprise that this serpent spoke to her. That doesn't mean she wasn't, it just doesn't indicate it in the passage. Now if she really wasn't surprised, that could be because of her innocence, maybe due to her unfamiliarity with the animals. Again, we don't know the time frame. How soon after the creation of Eve did this event occur? Probably not a great deal of time passed between creation and this event in the garden where she faced Satan at the tree. Now what's interesting is the very first thing Satan did was to attempt to put doubt in the mind of Eve. Doubt is one of the great evils of mankind. There are certain things it's good to be doubtful of. I doubt I could jump across the Grand Canyon. Probably that's good doubt. Because to attempt to do so, you know, I, I guess what, can evil tried to do it with a motorcycle and he didn't even make it. So I know I could. But there is doubt that is tragic. Now, it had never occurred to her probably that God might not have told Adam and her the whole truth or that she might not have fully understood. Now, I'm not saying that that's what happened. I'm saying it never occurred to her that that might be the case and that, of course, is what Satan is implying. He's insinuating that God was withholding something very important and very good from her. And that they had a right to this good thing that was being withheld So what was he doing? He was clearly implying that God's word is untrustworthy And that really becomes the key factor in this event and it becomes the key factor in so much uh, Of of the relationship that we have with God Satan was Directly attacking the very heart of our relationship of mankind's relationship with God himself. You're familiar with Romans 117, the passage which reportedly at least made such an impact upon Martin Luther. There it says, "The just shall live by faith." Faith in whom? Faith in what? Well, clearly, faith in God. Jesus wrote, that is, spoke, and his words were recorded in Mark 9.23, all things are possible to him who believes. Believes what? Believes in God and his word. Because how do we know God apart from his word? Yes, it tells us in Romans that we can know something about God from the created order. But we can't know God personally except by his word his own personal revelation to us. So a lack of faith and belief in God and his word opens the door to disaster, and Eve would soon discover that to be true. Rather than rejecting the insinuations of the serpent here, she debated with him. She could have said, you're telling a lie, and and turned her back. But, But she enters into discourse. With him here in other words the flame of doubt was flickering in her mind she explained that she could eat from any tree in the garden except the one which was in the midst of the garden of which she said that God had said you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die now as You'll note there on your outline, page 12 now, there are some key points or key teachings that we might extract from this at, at this point. Let me read a, a verse from James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, we have no idea, really, from the Genesis passage, whether Eve knew who Satan was, or that she had any idea that that's who was talking to her at this time. There's there's no implication there relative to this. My thought has been, is it not possible that in the walks with God in the garden, which seem to be implied in the book of Genesis, would God not have instructed them about, about Lucifer, about Satan? Would he have not said anything about them? Well, we, we can't prove that one way or the other from Scripture. Would seem logical, though. Of course, God's logic is beyond ours. But whatever the case was with Adam and Eve, you and I have no excuse for being ignorant of Satan and his devices, because we have the whole book of Scripture which teaches us not only the truth about God, but warns us of Satan and his devices and gives us so many examples of how he caused or at least tempted people to sin. And beginning with Adam and Eve and going through the whole Old Testament and looking at Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon and then going into the New Testament, we have numerous examples of how men and women failed because we could say they listened to the voice of the tempter and yielded to their own flesh you and i must be prepared i believe to use this verse frequently and and i trust you do generally speaking uh my wife and i use this verse quite a bit we've even used it coming here to this class we've had the experience in the past in teaching other classes, that the enemy can cause things to happen which are very disruptive even to something like this, and I'm not referring to that over there right <laughs> now. <laughs> that, but what I was thinking of is, like for here today, we've mentioned this before you, we have two tape recorders here. Why? Well, before in the past, when we've depended on one, everything was working absolutely perfectly, then for some reason, the end of the class, nothing was on the tape, or it was all... Screw it up, you know, and uh, we have found that little things like that. Now, you might want to just say, hey, it's just a technical glitch, but I think the enemy can stick his little finger down there and cause a technical glitch myself. I Granted, he can glitch two things, but <laughs> we, we, we purposefully use this verse and ask God to be here because I've been in classes and taught classes where Somebody asked such an off-the-wall question in the middle of class that we totally lose the point of what we're, we're going for and, and end up down some rabbit trail. And, uh, you know, I, I think those things happen because the enemy doesn't want truth to be planted in our hearts. A, a second important thing that at least I feel comes out of this uh, can be related in part from Second Timothy, chapter 2. Again, well-known... passage of Scripture, 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Now, obviously, this passage was not available to Adam and Eve. They had no written Scripture in their hands. But they were created in perfection, and they did walk with God, at least it seems to be, and talk with him on a daily basis. Eve's knowledge of God should have caused a red flag to fly when Satan began to insinuate that God was not telling the truth or at least not telling the whole truth, that God was hiding something from them. Because, first of all, they were in perfection and God had never hidden anything from them. Why could this be true? She should have fled from the serpent, but whatever was the case with her, you and I must flee because we know about his bite and his sting, and we know how it can impact us and destroy us, and we know he is going about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, he particularly wants to destroy Christian witness. He wants to destroy the church. He wants to destroy those who faithfully proclaim God's word through life and witness. And so it's important for us to be aware of his machinations and to be quick to flee and not to stop and debate with him because we will not win a debate with him because he is, of course, far more intelligent than we are. A third. Truth which may or may not be extracted from this passage depending on what commentator you read But it appears That she may have added to God's word when she said that God told them not to touch the tree either Because he said don't eat of it now some commentators may be making a mountain out of a molehill here We, We don't know that it's any that big a deal Certainly if you don't touch it, you won't eat from it, right? That makes good sense. But nevertheless, a truth can be extracted here whether it is directly out of this passage or not. And that's the truth that we find in Deuteronomy 4, 2 where we read these words of Moses, you shall not add to the word which I am commanding you nor take away from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Virtually all heresy from the earliest heresies of the church, the the Judaizing Christians, the Gnostics, virtually all heresy has its roots in adding to, deleting from, or twisting the Word of God. I mentioned to you several weeks ago that one of the uh, early heresy, heretics was a man by the name of Martian, and he literally cut up the Scripture. He, he threw throughout the entire Old Testament because it, it, of its Jewish influences, and he felt anything Jewish was not of God. And, and then he, he threw out much of the New Testament where there were Jewish influences. He scissored up, so to speak, uh, certain passages or, or certain books of the New Testament and kept the parts which he felt were Greek-oriented throughout the parts which he felt were Jewish-oriented. I mean, talk about heresy. Talk about rejecting God's word and making yourself the sole uh, arbiter of what is God's word and what is not. To me, it keeps coming back to the same point of arrogance. And you and I live in a day of greater intellectual arrogance than I think ever in the history of the human race, where people who stand 2,000 years after an event will categorically deny its reality and and say that those who describe it uh, were in collusion with one another to, to create something that didn't exist. To stand so far away and make yourself a judge, better judge than those who were near to the event, seems arrogant to me at least. But of course, there are those who feel that the human mind has evolved and it's evolved to a higher level of understanding and insight. And thus we're able to see what those couldn't see because their minds were, were, were clouded with uh, you know, the uh, ideas that they wanted others to have to believe. And there are actually those who believe that that the apostles and other leaders of the church created Christianity and that it never, it really wasn't what Jesus taught at all. And that when John wrote his epistle, which so prominently presents Jesus Christ's deity, that that, of course, wasn't really what Jesus said. That's what John said Jesus said. But if we accept that, Then we might as well throw the whole Bible out and and just believe whatever we feel like believing. Because if we don't have any solid authority to depend upon, if we don't have a solid rock to stand on, why bother? That's always been my feeling. Why would I want to go to church if I didn't solidly believe the truth being taught? It seems stupid. There are other social clubs to go to. People aren't any more weird in those than they are in church, so why not go there? A fourth truth, I believe, that can be extracted here is that Eve seemed to be near the tree. Now most artists actually render this as her standing virtually in the shade of the actual tree itself, with the serpent wrapped around the tree, hissing at her, you know. Now whether she was that near the tree or not, we don't know, but certainly she came near enough to it to take of the fruit. It's very possible, though, that she was near and that her curiosity was piqued. And she was just wondering, you know, it's really a beautiful tree. Why does God say we can't eat from it? And it's that point that Satan struck. Satan often comes at the point when we've already allowed ourselves into a place of weakness. When we're already sort of toying around in our minds with some area of flesh. And then he comes in there to throw a dart in to kind of nail it down and to get us to yield and to disobey God. She seems also to have been alone, at least in the passage before she gave to her husband and he ate, there's no reference to Adam. So she is thought to have probably been alone. Now Adam probably wasn't far away. It's not like he was on one side of the garden and she on the other, why would they do that? If had he been there, He might have been able to encourage her to resist temptation and she, him. All kinds of possibilities can be thought up here. But it should be noted, Satan is very persistent. When Jesus said to Satan, be gone, Satan, did he stay away for the rest of Jesus' entire ministry? not at all. When we resist the devil and the scripture says he will flee from us, does that mean he's gone forever and the rest of our lives are lived in, you know, Pollyannish situation with no devil around? Not at all. He'll be back, he's extremely persistent and therefore we must be very, very diligent. Let's turn to another familiar passage in 1 Peter, verse five, uh, chapter five, verse eight. 1 Peter 5, eight. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, And establish you now this is a passage I'm sure you've read often as I have you'll notice it says humble yourself we can't proudly stand before Satan and say I am somebody great so you got to get out of here we must humble ourselves before the Almighty and recognize that we are powerless without him Satan can make mincemeat out of us unless we trust in the one who dwells within us who is greater than the one who is in the world." And you'll notice it tells us that we are to cast our anxiety upon him and be sober in spirit, alert. We can't go around in la-la land in our brain and in our spirits and expect to be able to resist the enemy. We've got to be alert to his devices and to know that if he fails at one point, he's going to come at a later time at a different point. You know, the scripture teaches us that when we go to help another, a weaker brethren, we've got to, brother, we've got to be careful that we don't fall in that same area. You know, go forward and I'm I'm strong in that area. I'm going to go tell that guy how to get straightened out. Satan delights in nailing us in the very areas that we think we're so strong. We have to recognize that our strength is not in ourselves. It rests solely upon God. And If Michael the Archangel had to call upon God to resist Satan, where does that put us, you know? We try to resist him in the flesh forget it And then you'll notice the ultimate result of this that after we have suffered for a little while now Sometimes it doesn't seem like a little while does it and you think of some people who have been through Maybe a lifetime of what seems to be suffering in a a little in a given area but but the scripture does say that really, because of the fact that a lifetime is is short in God's eyes, that our brief momentary trials pale into insignificance compared to the eternal weight of glory. And it is God, after we have suffered through this a little while, who by His grace is going to Himself perfect us, confirm us, strengthen us, and establish us. We don't do it. He does it. Now obviously Eve didn't know all those things as we can know them. She wasn't familiar with 1 Peter. But the basic truth that comes out of the passage is applicable to us. And we need to be aware that the enemy is right here today. As you've heard so many times, where is Satan on Sunday? He's not at Skid Row, he's in church. It's kind of interesting, you look at the at uh, the facades of some of the cathedrals of Europe, and they've got little demons portrayed on the facade. Even the medieval world, well, of course, the medieval world, they thought demons and ghosts and goblins were everywhere, but, but they acknowledge the fact that demons will come to church. and They will try to disrupt what is going on. Now, in his attack upon Eve and ultimately Adam, Satan hit them in their most vulnerable, vulnerable point their egos. He said, if they ate of the fruit, they would be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, we noted in Isaiah 14 that it was this perverted pride and arrogance which brought the downfall of the anointed cherub who covers, of Lucifer, of Satan, of the devil. He himself sought to ascend into heaven to the equality with the most high that he might make himself like the most high satan's temptation to eve and even to adam didn't seem like i'm sure it didn't seem like general rebellion against god the words which were coming didn't seem like rise up and declare your independence and your authority and and reject the 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 tyranny of god no that that isn't the way it was coming over just a little insinuation. Yeah, God has told you so much and done so much for you, but there's a little thing he's keeping from you. Just a little thing. But if you, if you take of this a fruit, you will discover the knowledge of good and evil, and you'll be like God. It doesn't seem like general rebellion. It, it was seeking to know good apart from what God was providing. To find good apart from God's provision. Now, in a previous lesson we looked at the verse and we won't turn to it again in james chapter 1 where it says every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of lights every good and perfect gift there is no good in this universe that does not come from god and for anybody to assume that from a fruit a knowledge of good could come was, of course, folly, but she didn't see it. It was definitely a quest for independence because, actually, they were already like God, were they not? They had been created in the image of God. Male and female, he created them in his image. So they were like God already, and they already knew good because God was daily revealing good to them. He's the fountainhead of good. So, all they really could discover was the knowledge of evil. Now, I have no idea how, you know, we can put this all together. How could a perfect person in a perfect world even have a concept of evil? Maybe that was the whole crux of it. She had no concept of evil. And and maybe that was sort of the, the, the uh, the real temptation here. The most exciting part of the temptation was to know this thing about which they knew nothing. What, what is this evil? Now, God wouldn't reveal evil to them to them because evil is not a part of the character of God. <coughs> evil does not flow from him. I, I, I think that there are those, and of course we know there are certain heresies through the history of the church, but there are those who think that God is really the fountainhead of good and evil, and that he created a wicked devil just to make life tough for us. No. God is incapable of lying. God is incapable of any kind of evil. And therefore, he was not revealing evil to them. He was not a fountainhead of evil. They apparently became convinced that this, they could possess this forbidden body of knowledge and then they would be truly equal to God himself. Satan was tempting Adam and Eve to do the very same thing he had already done. He was trying to create them in his image, or or to make them in his image. The thought to be equal to God is a pretty heady thought. And of course, it proved to be a mere deception, because far from becoming like God, they became gods in their own eyes, and they became disobedient to the true God. And mankind has been seeking to exalt himself ever since. And we have numerous uh, examples of it in Scripture. And, of course, one of the most prominent ones we'll be studying later on, maybe this year even, about the Tower of Babel, where where mankind sought to exalt himself to heaven. And and when you think about it, often what helps to lead us into sin is, is our thought of Godness, going ahead and functioning in our own way, irrespective of what God has said, because that is an act of independence. You're familiar, I'm sure, with the first chapter of Romans, which seems to answer so many questions about a lot of things. In that first chapter of Romans, we read in verse 25: For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the create the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. It began in Eden, and ever since that time, mankind has been searching for deity, you might say. And of course, we live in a world today where it's it's multiplying across the landscape. We've got people proclaiming themselves to be God, and often they do it within the context of Christianity. If you've been reading on what's been going on in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, you discover that the doors are wide open there, and and the heresies are flooding in and even the unification church with its sun moon you know whose even his name drives you nuts but you know who, who portrays himself as a later day jesus christ and you know it plays upon man's desire to somehow deal with his need in his own strength and to really be self-sufficient to be the captain of our own ship. It's, in effect, a declaration of deity. Are we gods? Well, tongue in cheek, when the temptation to disobey God comes along, we're admonished in the book of Ephesians to be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. And it says to stand firm. What are we standing on? Well, we're standing on our faith in Jesus Christ as it's portrayed and delivered to us through the book, the Bible. And that's why a correct understanding of Scripture is so important to true faith. And that's why every heresy perverts it. Whether they try to come to your door and tell you that Jesus Christ was a a great man, but he was not a God in the sense of the Father, he's a lesser God. Not, a, a, not the God with a big G, but a God with a little G Or that he was the half-brother of Satan or some other nonsense a Perversion you've got to pervert the Word of God because if you don't people are going to believe the truth <laughs> And then where are you at? No. Unfortunately for Adam and Eve they didn't stand firm in what they knew about God They didn't understand they didn't stand firm in the word. He'd already given them and He'd already given them Many words, and and some of which are recorded in Scripture, that they were not to eat of the tree. But Eve ate of the fruit. She gazed at it, saw that it was appealing, decided it must be good for food. She probably wasn't all that hungry. I mean, the garden was just hanging with edible, delicious stuff. And, uh, uh, well, I don't know. I'm assuming there wouldn't have been anything she would have eaten that would have been harmful. Now, you and I, we go wandering around through a strange forest someplace. We probably just don't pick everything that's hanging out there and eat it because we have some fear that some of those things might not be edible. And, you know, they might even be deadly. But not in, not in Eden. Not in the garden. But, you know, on top of it looking good to, to eat, and, and do you and I ever eat just because it looks good and we're not necessarily really hungry? <laughs> Yeah, it's called dessert. <laughs> now, if you've eaten a meal, probably you're not really hungry, but we eat dessert anyway, don't we? Well, maybe we don't all, but uh, it's very, very common for us to do so. You've probably, like I have, run across some people who eat dessert first. <laughs> Why eat dessert when you're, it doesn't taste so good anymore when you're not hungry? Eat it when you're hungry. The bonus was, if, if the serpent is right, I'll get God-like wisdom. And so she allowed herself to be overcome by a temptation. And that is a key factor. She allowed herself to be overcome by temptation. God had not failed. And no matter what anybody tells you, the devil did not make her do it. And the devil does not make us sin either. He can tempt us, but he cannot make us. We choose to sin. James 1, again, verse 13. This is a verse passage. that always hits me when I read it. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So, automatically, God is ruled out in temptation and sin. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by what? His own lust. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. We sin because we give in to our own lusts. The devil doesn't make us do it. God hasn't abandoned us to go ahead and sin. We choose to do it. That's why we can be well, in this life, we never will be sin free, but we sure can go in that direction because we can change our choice. Now, it's not easy because inside our flesh, there's this, this beast, the old man that we keep dragging around with us, who's really hungry for a lot of things that the world offers. And sometimes they don't seem all that bad. Sometimes they seem horrible. And they don't always seem the same to, every, to, to different people. And then also in, in 1 Corinthians, the passage that so many times, so many of us have memorized, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. You and I are not the first one to face this temptation. Oh, I'm bearing the, the, the weight of it all because no one has been tempted as I am. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Not in the flesh, of course, but in faith in His word and in trusting in the indwelling Holy Spirit. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you may also bear it, endure it. So if we sin, it's because we chose not the way of escape. We shut our minds, we closed our our, our eyes to the way of escape and we said, no, I will do this. Now, we may not consciously say that uh, so that we perceive it. We just do that. And of course, one of, the, one of the problems is if we come from the Calvinistic school of thought, we come from that school of thought which, which says, you know, once you're born again, you're forever in the kingdom of God, and, and, and that's the way it is, when I'm not saying that's not true. But we, we depend upon that and say, well, I'm in the kingdom, so what does it matter? Uh, we have a little bit of tendency towards, or can, I'm not saying we do. We can have a little bit of tendency towards license because it's all been forgiven and, and God understands, you know, we're made of clay, we're but dust. So, you know, God will, will forgive us. But what we have to see when we're doing that is that we're destroying our basis of fellowship with him and we're destroying the ability for our, ourselves to minister and to be used of him because God can't use us if sin is pervading our lives. And of course, that's why 1 John 1, 9 is there to sort of be the spiritual washcloth and and keep us clean. But that's not to advocate that we ought to sin so that we can be clean, get clean again. Sort of like knocking your head against the wall, you know, because it feels so good when you stop. No, that's not the idea at all. Well, we need to look a little bit in detail as to uh, how this lust impacted Eve and Adam too, but we have a couple other things we need to do this morning. So we'll stop at this point and uh, finish uh, this passage next week and launch into the passage that follows, which is so significant.